What is population health? Why do some people become sick while others don't? How do we study and what can we do to eliminate health inequities? Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, the new podcast series from the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Science, covers these topics and much more. Join us. Arisha Martinez-Cardoso from the University of Chicago. Michael Esposito from the University of Michigan. And I'm Daryl Hudson at Washington University in St. Louis. Twice a month as we discuss cutting-edge population health research with scholars working across disciplinary boundaries. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special conference episode of Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, the new podcast series from the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Science. Uh, I'm your host, Mike Esposito, from the Institute of Social Research at the University of Michigan. And today, alongside three amazing early career scholars from the University of North Carolina, we'll be chatting about how defining race and health studies is a bit of a slippery task, how the conceptualization and measurement of race and ethnicity fluctuates across disciplinary boundaries, how health scholars have chosen to historically operationalize race and ethnicity in their work and chat about the joys and let's be real challenges of working together in a highly interdisciplinary team. Um, so let's not waste any time and just jump right into it. Uh, so welcome in everybody, um, Rayanne, Nafisa, and Andy. Uh, could you kind of introduce yourself for our listeners? Sure. I'm Rayanne Martinez. I'm a fifth year epidemiology PhD at UNC Chapel Hill. Um, my dissertation research focuses on embodiment of childhood adversity via accumulation of epigenetic alterations um, and the ultimate links to depression and anxiety in adulthood. Hey, thanks for having us on here. Uh, my name is Nafisa Andrabi. I'm a fourth year sociology PhD student at UNC Chapel Hill. I'm also a biosocial trainee at the Carolina Pop Center and I'm a National Science Foundation graduate research fellow. Uh, my dissertation is focusing on understandings of race among Muslims in the United States and the mental and physical health consequences of Muslim racialization in the U.S. context. I'm also interested in the impact of subjective experiences of inequality and health disparities across the life course. Hi, everyone. I'm Andy Goodwin. Um, like Nafisa, I'm also a fourth year in UNC's sociology department and um, a pre-doctoral trainee at um, Carolina Population Center with both Rayanne and Nafisa. Um, and my general research interests include social stratification association of health disparities in the U.S. context, and I have a focus interest on caregiver burden. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks for joining us today. And so early, like Nafisa, I just realized you're on the West Coast. So <laughs> this is kind of ridiculous. But thanks for being here. And we're really excited to um, have this conversation today. Um, so to start out, uh, could you tell us a little bit about um, this project that uh, y'all have been working on uh, called A Cross-Disciplinary Systematic Review of Race and Ethnicity in U.S. Population Health Research? And give us a little bit of an idea of like uh, what motivated you to um, kind of start this up. Sure, Mike. Um, so we're all members of this particular NIH T32 training program at UNC through our population center um, called the Biosocial Training Program. And the six of us on this project were the initial cohort of pre-doctoral trainees for the program. Um, so when we came together a couple of years ago, we were constantly talking about um, our training and our research from our own home disciplines um, and getting a feel for the different disciplines that we were coming from. And I think we found that we've been exposed to critiques and commentaries about incorporating race 
race and ethnicity thoughtfully in the Population Health Scholarship. Um, and these commentaries were calling population health researchers to, you know, critically examine uh, the roles of such structures in our studies and the assumptions behind them. And we are noticing in our own home disciplines, we weren't necessarily seeing that. There was discrepancy on what was being called upon research to do, researchers to do and what we were seeing. And so I think organically, it made sense for us to like come together and kind of really take a look at that. So we kind of decided that we were going to do a full out review on this. We've been told we're ambitious and we accept that. But uh, yeah, we decided that we were going to take a look and see, you know, the call to do a better job um, critically examining race and ethnicity in research for population health, we we're looking to see if we were doing a better job. Yeah, so to work on, to sort of tackle that question, we decided to break down what doing a better job meant into sort of these five aims, which we then examined over a 20 or so year period. Uh, so we wanted to really think about how is race being and ethnicity being incorporated into population health research? So we were thinking about incorporation as our first aim. For a second aim, we were thinking about definitions. So uh, thinking about biological determinism versus social construction. How are people defining race and ethnicity in their work? Uh, we then thought for aim three about measurement. So how are these questions around race and ethnicity being asked and how are they being coded in the analyses? And then we wanted to know about use. So what is the role of these race and ethnicity variables in the models? And lastly, we were curious about justification. So are people justifying their use of race ethnicity in their scholarship, or are they just putting it in uh, because in a sort of ritualistic regression notion that uh, we are just sort of blindly doing things that we know we're supposed to be doing? Um, and for the six of us, sort of beyond our academic interests, as Annie was saying, so we all came into this, we were working on this cross-disciplinary um, training program, which was to give us exposure to both the biological and the social sciences and to bring us together. Uh, and our curiosity and dedication to this project has really been informed by how all of us see ourselves falling into population health studies. So within our group, we identify as Black, Indigenous, immigrant, Latina, Muslim, South Asian, multiracial, and white. And so we come with uh, various uh, types of positionality, and that has really informed uh, some of our uh, discussions around this project. Sure, sure. And okay, so if you've listened to any of these other conference podcasts, like um, I've said this a lot, but I truly mean it each and every time. Um, but this is, sounds like such a cool project, like just on the science side alone of it. Um, right. Like, I don't think that we really get into or have discussions about measurement I mean, uh, and conceptualization perhaps as much as we should in population health science especially when it comes to kind of the social input side of social determinative work. Um, so seeing something like this, what you guys are putting together here is really, really exciting, um, right? Like taking this look, a careful look at how we conceptualize these categories that uh, are presumably very fixed over time, or um, at least if you looked at our research, you would assume that they're fixed is really such an important task. Um, but also like what's just as interesting is how you came to this work. Um, I think it's a really great example of how sitting along a diverse group of scholars generates really ambitious and genre-bending ideas. And I want to talk a little bit more about that as we get to the end of the podcast. Uh, but for now, let's keep it to the science and go by aim by aim uh, through the goals of your projects so that listeners can get a full appreciation of all the careful work that y'all did here. Um, so starting with aim one, you all wanted to examine the proportion of health studies that incorporate race and ethnicity in them over time. Uh, could you tell us a bit more about this goal and what you found and also how you went about investigating it? Absolutely. So let's start with some of the, the general hows. How did we go about investigating this work? 
As a group, we decided we wanted to focus on kind of three sub-disciplines under the umbrella of population health, and those were medicine, epidemiology, and medical sociology. And we're really interested in capturing the disciplinary norms around how race and ethnicity are kind of used, thought, talked about, um, and health scholarship. So to do that, we sampled U.S. human subjects research from about five to seven of the most prominent journals within each discipline. So for example, from the medical literature, we sampled articles from five journals, and some of those included JAMA, Lancet, New England Journal of Medicine, really prominent journals. And we sampled articles over a period of uh, a little over 20 years, so from January of 1995 all the way up to December of 2018. So we believe that targeting only one journal here would just give us the publishing norms of that journal alone. But by sampling from across prominent journals, we're moving a step closer towards getting towards those disciplinary norms and capturing something of an autocatalytic cycle and how norms are produced. So the research that's currently published in these journals is reflecting our current thinkings um, around surrounding race and ethnicity. And as scholars are being trained or working on the research and looking to top journals um, for best practices, the research that's published there is then informing future work and what's ultimately then resubmitted to those journals later on. And the cycle repeats and repeats and repeats. So we start certainly acknowledge that there could be very, there is very critical, innovative, radical work on race and ethnicity, but we're recognizing that that work might not be showing up in some of our most prominent journals within each discipline for a variety of reasons. And as it's not showing up there, it might not, this research might not be moving the needle on our disciplinary norms in quite the same way. So the last little bit of, I guess, methods that I'll mention are two really fundamental assumptions to all of the work that we're doing. The first is that we as a group believe race is a social construct where social meaning is assigned to an arbitrary phenotype or a set of phenotypes. We believe that this social meaning is contextually specific to a particular you know, social, cultural, political context, and also to a period in time. So it's changing, it's evolving over time, and that the boundaries of our racial groups are enforced and reinforced through social interactions to maintain privilege and power. So that assumption really informs why we are just specifically looking at U.S. research in that we believe the thinking surrounding race are specific to the United States and differ perhaps from Canada's, from Mexico's, from Brazil's, from Japan's, and so on and so on. Our second major assumption is that we believe as a group ethnicity is also a social construct, but here ethnicity is rooted in social meanings or sense of belonging surrounding dimensions like language, religion, cultural norms, place, belief, or values. So we draw a clear um, delineation between these two social constructs. So that's the basics of how we did the work. Uh, Now for what we actually saw in AIM-1, and just to reiterate, we wanted to look at the proportion of health studies that incorporated race or ethnicity data in some capacity in AIM-1. So we're kind of getting at a denominator here. Um, And this just meant, you know, really race or ethnicity had to show up in the, you know, demographics somewhere in the paper, in the analyses, just, just anywhere, really. And what we found here is that there has been an increase in the incorporation of race and ethnic data over time. Um, and this trend holds, uh, holds steady across disciplines. So in the kind of medical literature for medicine, we see the most stark increase, where in 1995 to 99, only about 
50% of published studies were incorporating race data in some capacity. And by the time we get to 2015 to 2018, our last time period, that has risen to about 75%. So we're seeing this like 30% increase. But on the flip side, that still means that over 20% of medical studies are not thinking about their participants' race in any capacity, right? It's not even showing up in your demographics table. And we kind of see this as potentially a statement of when race or ethnicity data is not incorporated, it's not important. It's not viewed as important at all to the study population, to the research question. This trend is also kind of true for epidemiology. So in 1995 to 99, we see it's hovering at about 70% and increases to about 80% over the 20-year period. The other um, major takeaway in this aim in looking at the incorporation of ethnicity data is that we're seeing that researchers aren't clearly delineating between race and ethnicity as social constructs. Whenever we see ethnicity data present in these articles, it's conflated with race. So we end up with this kind of ethno-racial construct. Um, And we'll talk a little bit more, I think, later on about why having clear conceptual distinctions between race and ethnicity might be important for your health scholarship. So that's the the how uh, we did this. Um, That's the what we found in AIM-1. I think we want to take a moment just to talk about the larger goal then, or the context of this work. So this might be a little bit of a, a spoiler for what's to come. <laughs> we really aren't doing a very good job. This like 30% increase in the medical literature, that's about the best news or like the, <laughs> the most improvement that we've seen across any of our aims with regards to race and ethnicity. So, you know, we're falling short still. And As you might see throughout the rest of the podcast, we're falling short of a really low bar. Um, Backing out even a little bit more, however, so I want to recognize that IPHS was to be held in Minneapolis, Minnesota this year, where George Floyd was murdered on May 25th of 2020. And so for those who haven't been paying attention, I think there seems to be this second wave of racial reckoning in the United States. But for those who have been paying attention, this is, this is nothing new. Regardless, given recent events right now, I think circulating in population health is this real fervor that we should move to focus on racism as a fundamental cause of morbidity and mortality. And, you know, the, the statement is racism, not race. And this is true, right? Like we need deep, rich measures of structural and interpersonal racism in our large nationally representative population health data sets. We need these measures to be just as common as BMI or income or your history of chronic illness because they are so powerful in understanding health stratification in the United States. But I think what we see through this work is that it's so ambitious for us to believe that we can dive straight into structural racism when we aren't doing a very good job with regards to these kind of fundamental concepts of race and ethnicity. The work that will focus on racism and prejudice must be coupled with this kind of increased scrutiny for how we treat these social constructs in pop health. So whether or not you view race to be the parent or the child of our system of structural racism, these social constructs are still really fundamental to dismantling these structural systems of disenfranchisement. Um, You know, in no way are we arguing against doing this work. 
but simply that it's very ambitious for us to attempt to call attention to structural racism when we don't seem to be able to think about people beyond a white, non-white binary in our health scholarship. Um, yeah, our bar is really low and we're, we're still not meeting it. <laughs> well, and just really quick to piggyback off that, you know, we, and we know that, I mean, I think one of the things that we also believe in our group is that race, ethnicity, this is a, like, understanding and having really theoretical, rich understanding of race, ethnicity is really critical in then having a really theoretically rich understanding of how structural racism is impacting individuals. And if we can't even see this basic work happening on understanding that the U.S. is more than just a binary white, non-white uh, population, then, it, then these this fervor and this call all of a sudden to really think about structural racism when we are also sort of unable to recognize in population health, at least that populations exist beyond this white, non-white, um, seems really challenging for us. And for us, finding ways to push people to think about uh, how can you do better just on these sort of basic race ethnicity dimensions is a really important first step towards then really understanding these much bigger systems of oppression. Certainly. I was, when, when you guys were talking, um, so you mentioned, was it 95 and then 2015? It was like the uh, two time points that you mentioned where the 30% increase happened. Uh, what, do you have any idea what happened in between those? I mean, I've got a couple of guesses, but like uh, y'all are the experts here, so. I mean, we do see a kind of slow and steady up tick. So it's lowest in 95 to 99 at that 40 to 50 percent and highest in 2015-2018. So I think this we'll talk about a little bit later in the medical literature. In 2003, the International Committee of Medical Journal Editors put out um, guidelines for the first time on how uh, authors should be reporting uh, rate on race and ethnicity or, you know, doing good health commu science communication. And that meant, you know, telling you what the measurement was, telling you why race was important to your health study. And so it could be that authors are ascribing more to, you know, to those guidelines or they're being enforced, but honestly, we, we really don't know. Um, okay. And yeah. <laughs> no, no worries. Yeah. No. Oh, and there's just a similar guideline put out in 93 by the NIH. And so, you know, like that, it may be that there, and we also see a sort of a couple year lag. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing that we've also thought about is sort of these shifts in sort of census categories and when there are big changes mm -hmm. in the census, whether those are reflected. But what, I mean, what we end up really seeing is that uh, population health is like pretty, there's a big lag between what's happening in the real world and what's sure. happening in the research. <laughs> Um, and then one more off the trail question, did you, and I may have missed this, but did you say what those kind of numbers, the percent of studies that were incorporated race and or ethnicity in their research were for the medical social um, literature that you sampled? No. So due to COVID, unfortunately, our data collection efforts have been a little bit slowed down sure, sure, sure. in all of our lives. So we're still working on the medical SOCH data collection aspect. We're about a little less than 50% of the way to our desired end for this discipline. So looking at the time trends, it's kind of all over the place. And we see that mm -hmm. this is, there's a lot of noise right now. These trends haven't really stabilized. Um, so sure. we'll have an answer for you in a couple months. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, no worries. Yeah. It's just a fascinating one because I think a lot of times um, sociology... Uh, 
sociology maybe gets like a free pass on like actually kind of being careful about race work or at least like kind of like the mainstream social journals. Um, and so I just want to see this so I can kind of confirm everything that I think about our own discipline that I love in a lot of different ways, but definitely concerned yeah. from some previous or prior ideas. 100%. And like we sort of, even in just this initial step or initial sort of findings, we're already seeing that being confirmed, what you're, what you're saying. That so sure. sociology does get a free pass and we probably shouldn't be getting a free pass yeah. based, on, <laughs> based on what we're finding. It's sure, sure, sure. Okay, let's go on to AIMS 2 and 3, which are pretty closely related next, um, right? And the results from this part of the project, uh, which are broadly centered around how health scholars from different disciplines have over time defined and measured race and ethnicity have me, uh, for lack of a better phrase, in my feelings. So could you tell me a little bit more about the thought process behind these particular aims and, um, again, what you found when you went into looking into them? Yeah, sure. So aim two, we're kind of looking at how they conceptualize the race, how they're defining it. And um, in our in our discussions as a group, again, it's very interdisciplinary. And so we were constantly coming back to making sure we are clarifying for each other what we meant by things, what our assumptions were when we were making statements. And we are realizing at baseline that that needed to be happening in these studies, right? Like if race or ethnicity was being used in a study, that needed to be defined for us or given a conceptualization of what was meant by that. And I think Rayanne did a great job earlier kind of giving you the definitions of, of what we see for race and ethnicity, as we see them both as a social construct. And we're looking in the in the US um, context as far as how it's conceptualized. But then, you know, race is a construct in which social meaning is assigned to an arbitrary phenotype or a set of phenotypes, right? And that meaning is contextually specific to time period and social, cultural, political context. And ethnicity, also a social construct, it's rooted in social meaning um, and a sense of belonging around language, religion, dress, um, behaviors and values, cultural norms and place, right? Um, more explicitly, we see Hispanic and Latinx are pan-ethnic groups, right? Not a race. Um, and we see African-American as an ethnic group, not synonymous with Black. Um, so we want to be very clear as we work through our project of being um, completely transparent about what we conceptualize race and ethnicity to be. And we are looking to see if uh, these studies were doing the same. Even And we are trying to be generous. You did not have to give us a full out definition of what you thought race <laughs> Please don't just throw it in there and assume that everyone has the <laughs> understanding, right? Um, and we think that's huge. That's important, right? Because if we're not defining it, uh, and we don't have a conceptualization of it, it could be perceived in so many different ways, right? And that's when things like an essentialist perspective of race continue to persist, right? Where it's thought that race is immutable, like these inherent differences based on genetics, right? There's this biological deterministic element to it, right? Um, and we've seen so many times racial differences, and since it's a podcast, people don't see my air quotes, but racial differences um, have been used to validate some of the most heinous <laughs> events and practices in our history, right? Um, and you'd love to think that that's part of the past, but we still can see that essentialist perspective uh, persisting now, where there's believed to be racial differences in lung capacity, right? Or in pain tolerance, in pain threshold, right? This is informing how physicians are prescribing uh, medications or treatments for uh, individuals. And that has real scary health outcomes. Um, 
and it still goes on, right? Um, if no one is stating what they believe race and ethnicity is, that essentialist perspective can just continue. And as recently as August, our group was looking at one of the journals we used, one of the medical journals we used in this review, and um, on their open network, they published an article with MDs and PhDs as authors, and they consistently referred to race as a biological variable um, when they were talking about its association with weight loss. And that was a little alarming for us. Again, August uh, is not that long ago, no matter when you listen to this podcast. Um, but yeah, we were we were just having that discussion. So the idea that to assume everybody has the same concept or definition of race and ethnicity is dangerous. And we feel like it needs to be explicitly talked about. Um, and again, Nafisa and I are social scientists. So, you know, maybe that's social science to really talk about like conceptualizing things. Um, but then you think for sure people would be explicitly saying how they measured it, right? You know, that Rayanne talked about BMI and, and things like that, where we know how it's being measured. You'd assume people were at least kind of telling us how they, they measured race or ethnicity. Um, and unfortunately, spoiler alert, that's not the case either, right? Um, and so I think Nafisa could probably tell us better a little bit about how we kind of approach the measurement um, aspect of it. Yeah. So, you know, and, and based, you know, what Andy was saying, right. So we know that a lot of these definitions uh, and ideas are evolving and, and that is why the, the communication of assumptions and definitions is really important to, to get folks on the same page. Uh, and that is unfortunately really not what we find. Uh, we use uh, Wendy Roth, Wendy Roth's work on the multiple dimensions of race to sort of guide our measurement section of the project. So um, sort of building on the, the reasoning that race is a social construct, we also know that race is multidimensional and race is fluid and race is dynamic. And um, race is not just one thing to one person or one, the same thing to every person. Um, and so using these the multiple dimensions really allows us to sort of tap into that. Um, and we recognize that these different dimensions can and capture information that actually may be more or less relevant to your research questions. Um, so, you know, uh, within Roth's work, there are these ideas of sort of there's racial identity, which is uh, this subjective self-identification. So that's not limited by any preset option. So if I just asked you your race, you know, what would you say with no, no options presented in front of you? Um, and that's different from self-classification, which is uh, when I see a form with six boxes, what do I tick when I'm asked what my race is? Um, and and that's different from observed race, which is what a physician might mark when you walk into the doctor's office and they're filling out your uh, charts. So all of these are these different dimensions of race. They're capturing really different uh, presentations of race, um, and they may mean really different things in terms of what outcomes you're studying. They may mean really things to the different things to the individuals, um, and we think that those are really important. It's a really important sort of guiding principle to recognize these multiple dimensions, uh, and and we use that to sort of organize how. Uh, organize what we're seeing in the and the scholarship itself, um, and you know so. The other important thing about these multiple dimensions is that race can also vary based on how a question is asked. You may get a really different answer from me if you ask me an open-ended question about what is my race versus giving me six categories. And that's really important from a measurement perspective and from a scholarship perspective um, in terms of if you can ask the same question multiple ways and you can get very different answers, you know, that's something worth pausing and thinking about probably. Um, and then, like I said before, these, these different dimensions of race 
race may be more or less relevant than others based on research questions. So for some folks, observed race may be really salient to the type of question that you're trying to ask, right? It's not really about how I self-identify. It's how I'm perceived, particularly stuff that may have to do with criminal justice contact. Uh, when we're talking about physician discrimination, those types of questions may really be driven by observed race more so than self-identification. Um, and those are the types of things that we frankly wish we were seeing people thinking about um, and that we ourselves are thinking about as we're trying to push our own work forward. Um, and, and you know, well, you know the bottom line, which is people aren't doing it. Um, and in terms of sort of then within measurement, what types of, uh, what are we finding? So what we find is that most of the studies did not state or were unclear what their dimension of race was. So there was either, so there was essentially no explanation for how race was measured. So race just showed up in the paper at some point, either in a table or in one sentence, they describe their demographics of the population, um, but then they sort of say nothing about how that data was collected. Um, the other really big uh, sort of distinction that we see in this measurement section is um, we see a lot of studies that found or that um, were between unclear self-classification versus unclear identity. So what this means is they essentially say race was self-reported. And when you say race is self-reported, you may think that you're being clear, but you're not being clear because we don't know if that is an open-ended question, if they were given Fixed questions, and also we don't necessarily know. Um, yeah, I mean, sort of those. Like those are the, those are the two big things. I was going to say that the other sort of discussion that we've had is sometimes they say a race is self-reported for children, and uh, we don't actually know who is answering questions necessarily for um, children, and that's often clarity that's not given. Uh, and so when this measure of race, so it's, we can't distinguish between racial self-classification and race uh, racial identity. Um, so that's kind of the other big uh, sort of takeaway that we find is that even when it's seems like people are trying to be clear, they're not being quite clear enough. Um, and, you know, we also do want to recognize that there are uh, many folks, in particular Black scholars, who are using incorporating dimensions of race beyond identity and self-classification and thinking really critically about this work, um, thinking about skin tone, thinking about structural racism, um, you know, the, the work of Ryan Cobb and Ellis Wong, um, Whitney Robinson, who's in uh, at, the, at UNC, um, Taylor Hargrove, who's in our department, um, Tyson Brown. I mean, they're, they're you know, so so to critique this work is to not say that there aren't folks who are doing really um, radical work where they're trying to think very critically about these dimensions. But what we're still seeing on on the whole is this very sort of reductive uh, approach to conceptualizing and defining and measuring race. All right. So Andy talked about conceptualizations and aim to Nafisa talked about the measurement. I'm going to talk a little bit about the coding schemes. So we extracted the verb verbatim coding schemes of variables out of all of the articles. And we stratified these by discipline and by whether or not we thought we were talking about race, ethnicity, or that kind of ethno-racial construct. What we see when we're looking at the coding schemes for race variables, where race has not been conflated with ethnicity, we see we're really being oriented to a white, non-white, or binary racial frame White is always our reference group. So we see a lot of white, non-white, white, other, black, white, black, white, other. We also see a fair amount of not stated. So authors just aren't even saying what their kind of coding or categorization scheme for race is. And we also see a fair amount of kind of white standalone. And we can get to that white standalone coding scheme in essentially two ways. In one, we have actually restricted our entire population to just be white participants. 
And in the other, we are engaging in sloppy scientific communication. So somewhere in your article or in your table, you've said, you know, 85% of my sample is white. And then you never say what the other, or like who the other 15% of your population is, right? Why, why was race relevant at all if you're not really going to tell me? Um, then for ethnicity, again, so we're thinking about ethnicity. We haven't conflated it into an ethno-racial construct. We're really being oriented to ideas of Hispanic, non-Hispanic as our predominant view of ethnicity. Or again, we're really not stating um, what our coding or categorization scheme of that variable was. Then when we look at the ethno-racial comparison, the, the most common scheme is Black, White, Hispanic, Other. So here we're treating Hispanic as a racial group, and we're kind of shuffling off or dismissing everybody else into that ambiguous other category that's really, you know, not interpretable. So I think there are two nuances then to touch on here. The first is that kind of, you know, why is it potentially important to have those clear conceptual delineations between race and ethnicity as social constructs. Um, the first, right, is like when we believe race and ethnicity are distinct social constructs, we're making this implicit statement of we're capturing different information and that race and ethnicity are perhaps operating mechanistically in different ways, right? They have different influences on causal paths to morbidity or mortality. But when we end up with an ethno-racial construct, Right. Our implicit assumptions are like are that this ethno race, ethnicity race is capturing the same kind of information and operating mechanistically in the same way. So there's some kind of similar influence on a causal path to morbidity and mortality. The other you know, nuance that we want to mention is really what does it mean to collapse groups into an other category? Right. That's really implicitly speaking to your values. The, the underlying assumption of this work in all of the work on race and ethnicity is that these groups are meaningful. Identity is meaningful, and it's meaningful in terms of history, power, privilege, our access to resources, perhaps cultural practices. And so when we're collapsing groups together, even when we're doing that because, oh, I have a small N and I, I can't do anything else, we're implicitly making decisions about whose history, power, privilege, et cetera, is, is more or less similar. Um, in some cases, you know, Collapsing groups together might be a defensible position, but you really have to communicate why you're doing that, what your assumptions are, which I think brings us into the next aim. Yeah, just to piggyback on what Rayanne said, like, we understand we're all early researchers, so we understand that a lot of the analysis is done on secondary data, right? So you didn't really have a hand in collecting the data. You don't have a hand in necessarily how those groups are broken down as far as uh, sample sizes in different race or ethnicities. But I think we just keep coming back to communication, right? By not stating at all why you collapse um, groups into other, by not giving any type of reasoning for that, um, we're, we're kind of left to our own devices to try to determine what we think that is and speculate. And that again, speaks to your values when we actually have you explicitly telling us why. Yeah, and this sort of lack of clarity would be I don't know. I mean, we've had this conversation multiple times in a group. Like, it, it feels like it would be, frankly, not permissible, unpermissible uh, around any other variables. It'd be unacceptable. So we thought about sort of diabetes. And, you know, if you were just to say we measure diabetes and you just put it at left it at that, like, what what does that mean? Right. I mean, there's there's so many distinctions. Are you measuring it via blood glucose or urinary glucose or HbA1c? You know, there's the amount of the rigor and the standard that we hold ourselves to in terms of the types of 
um, clarity that we have to prov provide around our outcomes in our analyses versus the type of clarity we have to, pro uh, to provide around race. So, I mean, it's a, it's, it's really disparate and um, we sort of, we, you know, we keep coming back to that, like as Rianne and Andy were both saying, where it, it is about communication and it's also about sort of how are you having these sort of wildly different standards of how you're communicating around different outcomes. And in some ways, uh, either in, like subconsciously or, you know, very actively, it represents something. It means something, how we use our words to communicate ideas. All right. Uh, that was great. Let's move on to aim four. Uh, this is really kind of great natural extension of the conversation that we've been having so far, right? Um, so thus far, you set up that there's quite a bit of variance in how researchers have conceptualized and operationalized race and ethnicity in the research. Uh, and aim four tries to examine if there's similar variants, both across disciplines and time, and how researchers are using race and ethnicity in their analyses. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about this. Yeah, so we, when we think about use, we basically at this point have con uh, sort of decided to think about whether race and ethnicity is of interest, not of interest, and exclusion, or sort of some some other use. Um, and those are sort of the big uh, sort of blanket categories that we first use in our uh, sort of data extraction and analysis process. And what we found was sort of similar findings across all three of our uh, disciplinary groups, so medical sociology, epidemiology, and medicine. So primarily, uh, studies were using race ethnicity data uh, as not of interest. So this could mean sort of uh, covariates, uh, confounding, confounders, sort of, you know, putting it in, knowing it's a demographic characteristic that matters, similar to um gender and ses um and this could be evidence of more sort of this ritualistic regression so we come back to this idea of you know how and why we know that there are these characteristics that are supposed to matter for outcomes and so we know that we should probably be controlling for them and whether or not there's any really theoretical motivation or thought given to why those are being included for your specific model and your specific research question and your specific outcomes is much less clear because as we've said many times before, there's usually only like half a sentence about race, period. Um, and so we actually have sort of no idea why it's included for the most part. But what we find is, um, but, you know, but we are seeing it sort of mostly used in this not of interest way. And, and, and we, you know, we are still sort of thinking through sort of what are some of the reasons and mechanisms that that sort of finding is coming up. Um, the other thing that we find, the sort of the second most prevalent category is exclusion. Um, so there are times, and I think sort of Rand touched on this a little bit earlier, there are times when uh, the exclusion criteria is used to exclude to white. You know, so maybe that 85% of your sample was white and you used uh, race as a, as a exclusion criteria to restrict your sample to all white. Um, other times exclusion was used to restrict to uh, all black. All Hispanic, um, and so even within sort of this exclusion, we're seeing we, what we know is that there are different implications. Um, the implications are different based on why individuals are being excluded, right? So excluding uh, everybody who's not white is really different from excluding everybody who is 
excluding to restrict the sample to, uh, to only black individuals. And so that's also something that we're still sort of thinking through and have been talking about is sort of what these different exclusions um, mean. But those are the sort of two big groups that we find in terms of how, uh, how the race data is being used in general. Um, you know, plot twists, like not really of interest to most. So, um, and what we recognize also is that how it's used as an exclusion. So for example, if you're using um, the race variable to exclude and restrict your sample to um, blacks only, that that may be an indication that it is of interest and that those are still sort of boundaries that were, um, or sort of ideas that we're, we're still working through at least as a group. Yeah, just to further contextualize this, I think now that we're kind of in AIM-4, we really have to look at how the prior AIMs are building upon each other and what this tells us about kind of the thought process of researchers. So I think we're all probably familiar with this concept as race is a risk factor in analyses where we're trying to look at the predictive power of race or ethnicity for a particular health outcome. Um, and to contextualize that use of like, what does it really mean when race is a risk factor? We have to look at our conceptualizations or our definitions for what we believe race or ethnicity to be. So Andy talked at length about, you know, biological determinism, the essentialist perspective of race. So if I or was approaching a paper and saw that race was used as a risk factor and the authors are you know, stating that they believe in kind of biological determinism, then the interpretation here is that there is some real meaningful underlying biological difference between racial groups that is leading to my increased or decreased risk for a particular outcome. And that can be incredibly harmful versus if I see race as a risk factor, but my, you know, the authors of this paper have stated that race is a social construct and that here they believe race is acting as a proxy for you know, differences in access to, access to resources or some other cultural component or ethnicity, et cetera, then that interpretation of race as a risk factor is entirely different. Um, so we really need to be kind of bringing all of these things together to unpack you know, what, you know, what does using a variable in a particular way tell us about a researcher's worldview um, and kind of stereotypes or mindsets that they, they may be propagating. I think also something Nafisa touched on a little bit is when we're restricting to particular populations, right, this can be seen as kind of taking a deeper dive into what's important for that population and potentially exploring heterogeneity within a racial or ethnic group. And I think we see some pretty big differences in like who is allowed to have heterogeneity or like who we allow to, you know, explore this kind of heterogeneity in health. So we did see um, some studies of just Japanese Americans, some data from the Black Women's Health Study. So those data popped up several times in, in uh, projects. Um, we saw a study of just Diné or Navajo um, individuals. And so there's, there is somewhat of a range, but um, really we need to take a little bit of a deeper dive into, you know, what does it mean to exclude to a particular racial or ethnic group? Certainly. I've seen a number of papers, a number of people go and talk to their advisors about work they're trying to like kind of develop um, and say, I want to focus in on AFAM communities, like a particular subset of the community to understand the mechanisms and 
uh, the processes that occur for this group and uh, get shut down like immediately, right? Um, without much justification, uh, I guess there's just always has to be some like kind of reference back to white folks and looking at between group heterogeneity as like the central thing that we're interested in race research. Um, but that that probably has to change because it's a real deficient way of thinking. Um, but yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say sort of like and you can imagine that if you went to your advisor and said that you wanted to study a group that is not even as big as blacks in the U.S., right? So if you do want to study right. one of these smaller other populations, it's both being collapsed into other. And then should you ever want to do something <laughs> which is just focusing on those that other population because they have never had interpretable data, you know, there's uh, also a lot of there, you know, you sort of run into that same process and it is really this sort of self-fulfilling, um, pretty harmful cycle that we're seeing replicated over and over again. And, and, you know, to bring it back to sort of what led us into this, it really is that all of us as individuals had been trying to do work that was thinking really critically about race, but was also existing at this intersection of sort of social science and biological science and where we were sort of entering this population health and health disparity space. And we were just finding it really challenging to do the, the quality and the rigor of work that was theoretically racially motivated and was really thinking about these questions critically. Um, and we just realized that there was, you know, very little space to engage in those conversations. And I think that's why, sure. I mean, this project has been really awesome for us. Uh, definitely, for sure. Um, so uh, we're getting short on time here. So let's go ahead and jump into the last bit of the science here, at least. Um, so, uh, like, I want to know a little bit more about how um, the researchers and the papers that you looked at, uh, especially this, uh, we talked a, bit, a little bit of this, like, offline, but, like, how this 2020 paper that considered uh, racism purely biological thing, um, conceptualized, measured, or justified these kind of decisions about how they conceptualized, measured, and used race and ethnicity in the work, right? And also, uh, let's talk a little bit more about the broader implications of your project, right? After doing this really deep dive and calling us all out, um, rightfully so, about like how we're being a little casual about race um, in our work, uh, what would you want to see um, from population health researchers um, in terms of how they're using, defining, and thinking about race and ethnicity? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, what we've found so far, Mike, and this won't be surprising from what we've said this whole entire podcast, is people aren't justifying either, right? So they're not <laughs> explaining to us why they made decisions about collapsing. They're not just, uh, explaining to us why they made decisions about how they're coding things. Um, we saw very, very low numbers um, and percentage-wise of, of justification. Um, and I, I, I know it sounds like our project is calling people out, but I think it was really for us to be better as scholars ourselves and then to share whatever we might be finding with that with others, right? Um, so shameless plug, we have a, a IAPHS blog series that we're putting together. It's going to come out after the conference called Beyond the Boxes, Guiding Questions for Thoughtfully Measuring and Interpreting Race in Population Health uh, Research. That's a mouthful. But generally, it's like using the guiding questions that have been um, at the forefront of our conversations and our discussions throughout the past two years of this project um, to share whatever um, tidbits that we found from it whatever things that we have come up with for making our work better um, and how we can better critically uh, incorporate race and how we're using it in our studies, right? So small, simple, practical changes. 
we recognize there's constraints, right? We talked a little bit about um, how you're doing secondary or you're doing um, secondary data analysis, right? So you don't really necessarily have control about how something was measured, right? Um, but you can speak about that. You can make sure that that's uh, covered in, in your limitations or, or how you are utilizing race in your study. Um, we know that there's uh, word limits for manuscripts. I know Rayanne thinks that sociology has no word limits and we write forever. But even our, even our journals have word limits, right? So we know that you can't necessarily go on and on forever about how you're conceptualizing race or ethnicity. But finding a way to make sure that it is in there and so that there isn't some type of guessing game on what you're really getting at when you're including it in your study. Um, we're still grappling with this. We, we are by no means the experts on this. We are just really uh, deeply embedded in this and we want to share what we're finding with others. Yeah, so just to be clear, the, the blog series that I'm very excited about is calling for kind of an individual level intervention, right? We're asking everybody out there as population health scholars to fundamentally change the way they approach race and ethnicity variables in their work or the constructs of race and ethnicity themselves, and also to really hold themselves to a higher rigor in terms of scientific communication. But if we like back out another level to kind of our interpersonal meso level, what we need to see there is that we're calling each other out. And that could be in your peer review process, right? You're reviewing an article and you see this kind of ambiguous, wishy-washy language about what was done and why, right? So calling attention to that there, calling attention to the work of your peers or collaborators when they engage in essentialist viewpoints, um, or again, use ambiguous language to describe what they did. And then if we back out again another level, what we need to see is structural changes, right? So journal editors to actually enforce their own standards with regards to how race and ethnicity is to be talked about in publications. We probably need to see, you know, NIH funding changes to, to give, to provide more funding for those studies that focus just on, you know, racial or ethnic groups that get lumped into the other category to really understand what's going on for those groups. We need to see also changes in our curriculums, right? So the way that our professors talk about race or ethnicity, the way we're taught to think about race or ethnicity, Medical curriculums are still heavily biologically deterministic, and only in the past couple of years have medical curriculums incorporated kind of social classes or social units to think about this larger, you know, social environment in which their um, people live. So we certainly recognize that there's push and pull between all of these levels and power at all of these levels, but really what we, I guess, see is six graduate students <laughs> working on their dissertations can call for is a lot of this individual level change and to provide resources to do that. Yeah, and just to sort of, um, you know, a, a couple like final points around around sort of this project, you know, we know, we find that people know race matters, you know, probably similar to how people in America like are maybe think that race is a thing sort of and and people are having conversations around it. Um, but when you're including it as a covariate in your study, but you're including it as sort of white, non-white, white, black, white, other, with no sort of description about how race was measured or how categories were collapsed, at some point, you know, we just end up thinking, what was the point of including this variable at all? Sort of what's the point of doing something just because you think it's the right thing to do? 
if you're not actually thinking critically about why this variable might matter for your specific model and your outcomes. And, you know, sort of that's this question that we come back to a lot where, you know, like we don't want to just be doing lip service. Like we really want to be doing good work. And how do we actually shift the needle so that we're doing good work and not just doing performative work? Um, and, and, you know, uh, just a couple other things that we uh, wanted to touch on. Um, we also really hope that through this work, people think about, you know, what, who is missing when we're not thinking about multiple dimensions of race, when we're thinking about these really by like these really sort of binary racial schemas, who ends up falling through the cracks and who's just not being represented in our population part of the population health. Um, so we think about Afro-Indigenous individuals, Afro-Latin, um, Southwest Asian, thinking about people from Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, this MENA category, Middle Eastern, North African, um, you know, we, 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 we're seeing a lot of individuals who just aren't, uh, cannot possibly come up in the categories that we're using right now for um, racial categorization and racial measurement. Um, and, you know, so, and sort of this thinking about the fact that in fact, people are missing from these analyses. And there's an implication for when people are missing, like there are consequences for that. And those are consequences that, that you know, we as a society are living with. Um, and, you know, we also want to acknowledge that these sort of racialization is an ongoing process and these racial schemas in the U.S. are evolving. You know, we've sort of gone there, there are, especially in sociology, sort of theoretically, there are these sort of binary approaches to these triracial, biracial to triracial. Um, you know, we're having dialogues on what does this mean a category mean, these distinctions between African-American versus Black, why is Hispanic being view viewed as a race, sort of how did it come to be as an ethnicity, and, um, you know, where do sort of multiracial or biracial people end up? I mean, all of these are not just these sort of like quick bullet point questions at the end, like they really deserve uh, sort of deep and critical thinking. And while we know there are some people doing this deep and critical thinking around it, what we're seeing is that as a whole, our disciplines are just falling short, and it's not just one discipline but it's really a sort of across disciplines. Um, so that's where we're at. <laughs> oh, certainly. And what a place to end that with, right? We still have a ton of work to do. And I would love to keep talking about, like you even said, just those last points that you brought up. Uh, we have to get through this before the producer turns out the lights on us. So um, as one Last um, kind of like point of discussion, uh, could you all talk a little bit more about like what it was like to work in kind of such a diverse, um, intellectually diverse group, right? Uh, you know, I think that for all the genuine interest, and I do, do mean genuine interest, we have a whole conference of a whole uh, association about doing transdisciplinary research. Uh, we're still kind of trying to figure out the nitty gritty details of how to make that a smooth and productive uh, process, right? Um, you guys were clearly successful in putting together um, one of these kind of intellectually diverse groups. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit more about like what it was like working in that environment or give us any tips and tricks for uh, how you might like kind of go about building your own interdisciplinary research team? Yeah, I think, I mean, we know we're quite fortunate to be able to have this biosocial training program Shout out to Bob Hummer and Alice Nayello, who are uh, their brainchild um, at UNC, where we are working daily with our, our peers who are in different disciplines. It's one thing to take a class um, in a different department, in a different discipline, and kind of get maybe a lecture or a professor kind of explaining something to you from 
the uh, from the front of the classroom. It's another thing to be in um, focus rooms countless hours with each other and kind of really getting into it and and shocking each other sometimes with how we have very different terminology or interpretations of things. Um, and then we grow from that. That's where the growth happens, right? That's where the real knowledge is happening. Um, and then we all come with a different set of skills. And so for us, that's been really beneficial and being able to like delineate tasks based on people's skills um, and constantly coming back to redefining our assumptions so we know what we're operating from and where we're going with, uh, with our thoughts. Yeah, we have spent probably an inordinate amount of time together over the past two years in working on this project. We started the work formally in January of 2019, and we have had uh, like an hour group meeting every two weeks for the past like year and a half. And so it's just really been through a lot of conversation, conversation about like Andy was mentioning, those assumptions, those practices, just learning what, you know, the standards are in sociology versus health policy versus biological anthropology in terms of, you know, approaching a research question, keep writing, you know, our writing styles are wildly different. <laughs> um, our, you know, our other publishing norms are very different. And so just a lot of that has come out in, in just trying to make headway on this project and talking about it. Yeah, and I think with those, to the point that Rand makes about sort of just how different styles are, I think it's also been a really good practice for us, um, at, at times challenging, in sort of letting go of some of our attachments to our own disciplinary norms, um, which, you know, at some point are probably a little bit arbitrary. And there have been times when we're, you know, like, no, the figure should probably look this way, but maybe it should be this way. Uh, and we're just so used to sort of being in our own spaces and seeing sort of the same work presented in the exact same way, even with working on collaborative presentations. There's just different styles in how, you know, Rayanne and Andy and I actually gave a presentation last week and um, Andy and I were like, well, of course you would put this in the beginning. And I was like, why would you ever put it in the beginning? You know, and so we, and at some point we're like, you're right, like probably doesn't matter where it goes. It, I don't know, I, I have no idea. There was no argument one way or the other, except that it was just how we had always seen it done. Um, and so there's a lot of a lot of that. And I think the, the practice of sort of being able to let it go and understand that it's probably just fine no matter which way you do it has been um has been really good and and we do some like co-writing sessions which is which has been helpful and like Rand said like sort of these weekly bi-weekly check-ins um, and also sort of establishing expectations really clearly between the six of us has been really important because we're also working on our own dissertations and projects um, and I think having kind of a, a safe group where you can just be really real about you know, like, I'm just not going to be able to do this or, you know, and, and, um, and trusting that everybody is going to do the work when they can. And they're being sort of clear about um, what expectations they can and can't meet has been really important for us also. Definitely. You all make it sound so easy, but I know it's a tremendous amount of work and um, you pulled off something truly impressive here. All right. So as much as I hate to say it, uh, we're all out of time. Uh, like I said before, I could keep talking about this all day. Um, thanks again to our panelists for a really engaging discussion, and I can't wait to see this project in print. <clears throat> and for listeners out there, if you enjoyed what you heard today, be, be sure to turn it, uh, tune in for similar conversations of how experts from different methodological and disciplinary traditions work with one another, one another across boundaries to understand and improve population health 
in upcoming episodes, Sick Individuals, Sick Populations. And also, be sure to check out the work of other scholars participating in IEPHS's 2020 annual meeting. Uh, you could visit our website, IEPHS.org, for more recordings from our conference. Uh, until next time, see ya.